I recognize that you know Mother's Day isn't a great day for everybody, uh, right? So some of us have lost our moms. Um, some of us have wanted to be moms, and for whatever reason, that hasn't happened or hasn't happened yet. And so some of us have very complicated relationships with our moms. Uh, and so Mother's Day, for a lot of us, is a really great, exciting, joyful day. For others of us, it can be kind of tough. So I just wanted to take a second uh, to just recognize all, all of those people that maybe this is a struggling kind of day for you and uh, say that our prayers are with you and, and, and we love you on this day as we do on all days. So I'm going to say a quick prayer and then we can get started. Lord Jesus, uh, we give you thanks for this day. Uh, we give you thanks especially for uh, our mothers and this opportunity to recognize them. Um, and God, we just pray that you would be with us during this time, uh, during the message, that you would just bring to life the scripture that is before us. And we pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. So this morning, uh, I want to start off by having us just think quickly about a word, uh, and that word is chaos. So think for a second about what comes to mind for you when you hear that word. Uh, because for some of you, what is happening in your life right now probably feels a little bit like chaos, right? Our circumstances, our, our daily life, our daily routine feels a little chaotic. Uh, every day is different, every day is challenging, every day is exhausting in some kind of new way. Uh, and so in every day there feels like there's one more thing to do, one more obstacle to overcome, uh, one more thing in our way. Life is the opposite of organized and reliable, right? There's no semblance of order to it. And so the whole thing just feels like chaos. And that might be you today. Uh, and just real quick, you know, there, there's a difference between chaos and busyness. We're all busy people. I would say most of us in this room would probably identify as being busy. Um, but not everyone who is busy is also in chaos. So we'll take moms, for example, since today is Mother's Day. Um, if this sounds familiar, let me know. If you're a young mother, your day might look something like this. Get up, get ready for work, wake the kids up, get them ready for school, get everyone breakfast, get everyone out the door, go to work yourself, get the kids. Then afterwards, you go get the kids from school, you come home, you make dinner, you get the various kids to their various sports or activities. You try to carve out maybe an hour or so while the kids are at activities to like do laundry or pay the bills or whatever it might be. Then you go get the kids, you bring them back home, you make sure they brush their teeth before they go to bed, you put them to bed, and then maybe you have like an hour to yourself or with your spouse before you have to go to sleep. And then you get up, you do the whole thing the next day, rinse and repeat. And that is every day. Now that's busy, right? But there is order. I got a thumbs up from Alicia. She's like, that sounds familiar. <laughs> that's busy, but there's order to it, right? There, there's a predictability to the whole thing where yesterday is the same as today and tomorrow is probably going to be pretty similar. And so that busy routine sometimes is fine, but a lot of us that live those busy lives can also recognize that we are just kind of one incident or one thing going wrong away from chaos. So what happens if somebody gets sick? What happens to that schedule? What happens if your car breaks down and you can't afford to fix it right away? Or what happens if you lose that job? Then all of a sudden things get thrown into chaos. And so we can hold the busyness together, we can hold some of the stress together for probably a really, really long time, but when something gets taken away or something gets added or something goes wrong, then chaos sets in and everything gets thrown into absolute turmoil. It's like a shoestring that's tied up nice and tight, right? It holds up under most things, but if you pull that one string hard enough, the whole thing is going to come undone. 
And so maybe sitting here this morning, you can think of what that string is for you. That one thing that if it got pulled hard enough, it would cause the whole thing, the whole house of cards to just come down. Uh, Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your kid's health. Maybe it is your job. Whatever it is for you. Or maybe as you think about the word chaos, maybe you don't think about your outside circumstances, but you think maybe something that's a little bit more internal, a way that you feel, where everything outside looks like it's going fine and looks like it's going normal, but inside you're a mess. And you're asking all these deep questions and you're wondering, who am I or who is God? Um, What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And so outside, externally, it looks like you're fine, but internally there's chaos. Whatever it is for you, I want you to hold on to that image, because we're going to come back to it a little bit later. But whatever it is for you, hold on to that for just a little while. So we are in a series uh, here, in case you didn't notice, uh, with the fanfare at the beginning, called Marvel. And what we're talking about during the Marvel series is the miracles that Jesus did that kind of proved who he was, that he was and is who he says he is. And so when we started talking about this theme of Marvel and miracles and tying it into uh, the whole superhero thing that's in culture right now, I got pretty excited. Uh, And if you know me, you know that I'm a pretty big dork. Um, And so I love uh, superheroes and Marvel and I love sci-fi and fantasy and Star Wars and all that kind of thing. And for me, that love of all those things started when I was a kid. And so I started as a kid, you know, I loved Spider-Man and X-Men and the Avengers. And that was partly because when I was a kid, there were some good TV shows on, uh, and they had good toys, which was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, um, I used to watch the, the TV shows on Fox Kids, like every Saturday morning, that kind of thing. But one of the things that was kind of unique about my situation is that my dad uh, has, had and still has, uh, a collection of Silver Age comic books. And Silver Age is like mid-50s to early 70s that he bought when he was a kid, which is pretty cool. So I brought one with me. Um, and so I used to page, these, page through these things when I was 11 or 12, um, thinking, you know, this is what my dad read when he was 11 or 12. And so uh, this is one of his comics. It is an issue of The Mighty Thor, and it, came, it comes from 1964. So some of you can probably remember what you were doing in 1964. Some of you weren't alive yet. Um, But this is an issue of Thor. And the cool thing about this is that this was actually purchased at Lawyer's Pharmacy um, in Red Lion. And so if you don't know what Lawyer's Pharmacy is, that was Ken's grandfather that founded Lawyer's Pharmacy. And then his dad became the pharmacist after that. And then Ken disappointed the family and became a preacher. Um, But you can see right on here. 12 cents, 12 cents for a comic book, which is pretty cool. But the reason I, I, read, I, I bring Thor uh, this morning for kind of this, this Marvel tie-in is uh, because Thor has a really specific enemy, um, somebody who's in his adversary that he fights pretty regularly through the comic books and, and especially in the movies. Um, and in the movies and the comics, it happens to be his brother, uh, a guy named what? Loki, yeah. So Loki um, <clears throat> looks like that in in the movies, played by uh, Tom Hiddleston. And if you know, if you know anything about Thor, uh, you know that actually those characters were lifted from Norse mythology, right? Thor and Loki and Odin and all those, they didn't start as comic book characters, they started as people from mythology. And so Loki actually looks like that in, the, in uh, Norse mythology. <clears throat> but Loki is the god of mischief and the god of mayhem. And yes, the god of chaos. 
And if you look at ancient religions, what you find in most ancient religions is that somewhere there is a god of chaos. So for the Norse, uh, Norse gods, it was Loki. For the Greek gods, it was a goddess named Eris. Uh, for the Romans, they had Discordia. You think of the word discord, Discordia. The Canaanites, who were Israel's neighbor in biblical times, uh, had a god called Yom. That was the god of chaos. And so the reason why across so many religions there is a god of chaos is because, frankly, chaos is a universal experience. Chaos is a part of every single person's life. And so it was true that people experienced chaos one, two, three, four thousand years ago, as we do now. There are just things in life that seem to happen randomly. There are seasons of life that are disorganized and trying. We go through major struggles where um, nothing seems like it's in order where everything just seems like it's out of whack all the time. And so there has to be, in the minds of people, right, some kind of explanation for this. There has to be some God controlling all of it. And if we please the God of chaos, then chaos will stay away from us. Chaos will go for somebody else and not for us. And that's actually part of what made Judaism and Christianity unique in the ancient world. Was it because while all the other religions around Israel... Right? So you think of Egyptian religion and Canaanite religion and Greek and Roman religion. All of them had a pantheon of gods. They all had multiple gods, each one who had a different set of responsibilities. But for Israel and later Christianity, there's one God. Right? One true God. And what we're going to see throughout the rest of our time together this morning is that the Christian God actually handled chaos very differently than these other gods. And so earlier we read from Mark chapter 6, um, and last week we read from Mark 6 as well. And there's this miraculous thing that happened where Jesus um, feeds 5,000 men, or because of the way crowds were counted back then, probably between 10 and 20,000 people, because they only counted the men. So you're talking about 10 and 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. It's a pretty amazing story. Jesus takes these five loaves and these two fish and multiplies it and feeds everyone. He's out in the wilderness and he's teaching. And rather than send everybody home, he says to the disciples, hey, feed these people. And the disciples say, there's no way we can do that because we don't have enough money and we don't have enough time. But Jesus says, well, what do we have? And so they go and they find this little Hebrew kid who has his Hebrew happy meal, five loaves and two fish, And Jesus takes that and he multiplies it and he feeds these many thousands of people. And so that's the miracle that we talked about last week. And the point of that story is that Jesus, being God, has that ability to create and to multiply and to provide. And so Jesus has power over these elements just like God does. And so the story that, that we read, that Mindy read just a few minutes ago, happens right after that. So you saw the reference to the loaves in there. That's what they were referring to. And so what happens at the beginning of the story is Jesus tells his disciples to go on ahead to their next destination. And so he says, get in the boat and start sailing and I'll catch up to you. And so what it says in verse 47, chapter 6, verse 47 of Mark, it says, when evening came, the boat, so the boat that the disciples were, were in, was in the middle of the lake and he, Jesus, was alone on land. So the disciples go ahead They start sailing, they're in the middle of the lake, and Jesus is alone. But this is a problem, that the disciples are in the middle of the lake. Because where they're headed is from a place called Capernaum to a place called Bethsaida. And if you see on the map, 
Capernaum is kind of in the north uh, portion of the Sea of Galilee, and Bethsaida is kind of northwest of there. And so if you were sailing from one place to the next, you would probably go in as straight a line as possible. And in this case, that's pretty close to the shore. But as Jesus looks out, he sees the disciples, and they're in the middle of the lake. So clearly something terrible has gone wrong, because they are not taking the straightest route to their destination. And we see why in the next verse. The next verse says that he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So there's these massively strong winds that come in, and it blows the disciples off course. And what we hear here is uh, actually echoes of Mark chapter 4 as well. So two, two chapters prior, again, the disciples find themselves on the lake, and there's this massive storm with huge winds. And in Mark 4, the, the storm that occurs there, the word that's used to describe it is seismos, the Greek word seismos, which is where we get the word seismic, so it's like an earthquake. And so Mark uses like this term earthquake to describe this storm that's happening. So it's a big storm. And so once again, the disciples find themselves in the middle of a storm, um, kind of uh, in the risk of shipwreck out at sea by themselves. And so we have to ask, like, are the disciples just really bad sailors? Right? You can't see the storm clouds. You can't read the radar. Look at the 10-day forecast, you know? Um, but part of, it has, part of the, this has to do, actually, with the geography of the Sea of Galilee, and I think this is kind of interesting. So the Sea of Galilee actually lays about um, 700 feet below sea level. And around it are these highlands and these mountains. And so on the eastern shore, there are these mountains that go up to about 2,000 feet. And so you've got this massive difference from where the Sea of Galilee is to the mountains. And so when the wind blows, the wind actually travels through some of the valleys, through the mountains, like a wind tunnel, and dumps right onto the Sea of Galilee. And the other thing is, because uh, Galilee is so low and the mountains are so high, the Sea of Galilee, it's kind of tropical-ish temperatures, it's very warm. At the top of the mountain, it's obviously very cold. And so when these two air masses meet, you get storms. That can happen very quickly and very suddenly and very violently. And so the Sea of Galilee was famous for having these just storms that develop like that, with massive wind and huge waves. Um, and so even though it's a lake, you get these big, you know, 10, 15, 20-foot high waves like you're on the ocean. And so the disciples are in the middle of one of these storms. But there's actually even a little bit more going on here uh, that's not in the Bible itself, but something that we know from history. Uh, how many of you would consider yourselves superstitious people? Anybody? Like, there's a, there's a black cat, you turn around and go the other way, or um, if you spill salt, you'd throw some over your shoulder, whatever it might be. Knock on wood. Um, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I resonate with Michael Scott from The Office here. Um, one of my favorite quotes. When he says, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. <laughs> Which I think is pretty funny. But Jews in Jesus' day uh, were actually very superstitious about the water and about the lake. And so you think, this is a day before GPS and before modern building materials, and, and this is a really uh, dangerous time to be a sailor. No life jackets, no Coast Guard. So if, if you were caught in a storm, if you were in uh, high winds, and your ship went over, you were on your own. And the chances are you were probably going to die. And so the Jews of Jesus' day, especially those who were near water, like Jesus' disciples, a lot of them were fishermen, right? Um, they thought the open sea was a wild place that you didn't want to go. 
And so it was this place where anything could happen, and it was disordered. They believed that it was actually a place where evil spirits roamed freely. And so when they say, like, they thought Jesus was a ghost when they see him, that's why. And there's a few places in the Bible even where uh, it talks about, like, a mythical creature called Leviathan. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Leviathan or not, but the Leviathan was this big sea creature that was supposed to live under the water. And Revelation 21, chapter 1, we're given the detail, so this is the end of the Bible, that Jesus has come back and the new creation has come. And there's this weird phrase where it says, in the new creation, there, there was no more sea. It's like, why is that? Why does it say there's no more sea? And this is why. Because the sea was a wild place. And the sea was chaotic. And the sea was potentially evil. And so in the kingdom of, to come, when things are put in order, there's no more sea. And so for the Jews of Jesus' day, and probably for his disciples too, the sea is packed with way more meaning than it is for us. They don't, they don't fear the water like we fear the water. I don't like water. I, I have this deal with the ocean that if I stay away from it, it stays away from me. <laughs> so as long as I stay far enough inland that global warming doesn't get me, and there's no Sharknado, I should be all right. <laughs> but as the disciples are being swamped in these two stories, in Mark 4 and Mark 6, they believe they're in danger not just because of the shipwreck and, and the imminent physical danger they're in, but they believe they're in danger because of kind of these cosmological and theological reasons that they are in the midst of this chaotic place. And what I find interesting is when we find ourselves in chaos, a lot of the time we react just like the disciples. We respond just like the disciples do. We find ourselves straining at the oars, trying to get back on track. And we are bailing water out of our boat as fast as we can. And we are scurrying around the boat doing whatever we can and probably also yelling at God just like they do in Mark 4. And they say, can't you see that we're perishing here? Like, do something. And so a lot of times when we are caught up in the chaos like the disciples were, we do whatever we can to try to exert control and exert our own will over the situation to try to restore some of the order that the chaos has taken. In the early 2000s, there was a study that was done um, that studied married couples in which one of the people was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And what they found was that the divorce rate in those couples was six times higher than the control group. And most of the time, it was the healthy person leaving the sick person. And we think to ourselves, like, how could somebody do that? How could somebody leave their spouse in such a vulnerable position? But the truth is, is that when the chaos sets in, a lot of times we will do whatever we can to try to restore some sense of order and some sense of normalcy. And so when that chaos comes, a lot of times people are willing to do whatever it takes, even something like that, to just simply restore balance in life. But what these stories in Mark show is that that kind of response is not the way to overcome the chaos. There will always be another storm. There will always be something else that comes as it rains. <clears throat> See, the disciples can strain at the oars all that they want, but they're never going to be stronger than the storm. And they can bail as fast as they can, but they are never going to outwork the waves. And so in both stories, it's Jesus that has to come to the rescue. And it's Jesus that has to handle the chaos. He comes 
in Mark 4 and Mark 6 to calm the storm. In Mark 4, Jesus is actually asleep on the boat during the storm. And the disciples wake him up and they're like, do something about this. And so Jesus wakes up and he's like, be still. And the storm disappears as quickly as it came. And the disciples are amazed. And in Mark 6, Jesus calmly strolls out onto the water, right? That's the miracle, that he just walks out to the boat on the water. And he gets into the boat, and as soon as he gets into the boat, the wind just dies down, and they're fine. Think for a second about Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovers over what? The waters. And then in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, it says... Um, the, the Hebrew is tohu wabohu. Does anybody want to say that with me? Tohu wabohu. It's kind of fun. And that's translated as wild and waste in some translations, or formless and void in another one. Another one says chaos and waste. And so the Spirit of God is hovering over the water that is chaos. But the very next thing that God does in Genesis 1 is he starts to bring order to the chaos. Day one, day two, day three, four, five, six, seven. He separates light from darkness. He separates water from land. Life starts to burst forth in the creation. And so in Genesis chapter one, the chaos gets ordered by God. And what the disciples are seeing here, what's dawning on them, is that this Jesus that they've been traveling around with is doing the same thing. That the only one who has power to do what he did is God. So Jesus orders just as God does. In Psalm 107, it says, God stills the storm to a whisper and waves, and the waves are hushed. Which is exactly what Jesus does here in Mark. And so we often think about this story as Jesus having power over nature, but it actually goes a lot deeper than that. <clears throat> this is Jesus overcoming the chaos. That was in the beginning. And no one else has the ability to stand. Anyone who has tried to stand up against the chaos like they experienced on the lake that day has been swallowed up and they made their forever home at the bottom of the lake. But Jesus stood against it and demonstrated that he has a power that only God possesses. And he's not the God of chaos, right? So Jesus is not Loki, he's not Discordia, um, he's not this person that, or this God that likes to just see, watch people squirm. Now, Jesus is not God of chaos. Jesus is God over chaos. He is sovereign over chaos and is the one that can bring order to the chaos of our lives. And what's super interesting about this is that after this episode, the disciples' lives change because they see Jesus in a new way. New things are revealed to them after the storm. In Mark 8, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection for the first time. And the disciples start to get a sense for this bigger plan. In Mark 8, uh, later, Peter makes his first confession of Jesus as Christ. So again, seeing him in this new way. In Mark 9, Peter, James, and John go up to the mountain with Jesus and they see him transfigured. And so it's only after the storm, only after the chaos that they begin to see Jesus in new ways. The chaos gives Jesus a chance to demonstrate his identity as the one and only Son of God. 
And so, uh, as we turn towards closing up this morning, I ask you this question. What if we saw chaos in our lives, not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity? What if the chaos is actually present in us so that we can be driven deeper into relationship with the one who is the only one who can stand against the storm? And by asking him to be present within our chaos and giving control over to him, we are actually ready to see him in new ways. You see, chaos in this world is a given because it's a broken world. God created it, God ordered it, then we disordered it. And so we're always going to experience this. But Jesus is the one who is sovereign over the storm. And if we bring that into our chaos then we'll feel his presence in a new way and discover what it means for him to be Lord. There's a story um, about a family who was vacationing on a lake. It was a mom and dad and their four kids. Their oldest daughter was 12, their youngest son was four. And the 12-year-old daughter was supposed to be watching the four-year-old. But as four-year-olds do, he squirmed away and ran towards the dock because he was fascinated with this aluminum boat that sat tied up to the dock. And so as he tried to get off the dock and into the boat, his little unstable four-year-old legs actually dumped him into the water. And so the 12-year-old shrieks, and the dad hears the scream, and he bolts for the dock and jumps in the water and searches around and tries to find his son and can't find him. So he comes to the surface, takes another gulp of air, swims down. It's murky. It's dark. He can't see. He's feeling around. Still nothing. Finally, a third time, he comes to the top, takes a big breath of air, dives down, and finds his son under the water clinging to the pole of the dock because he didn't know how to swim. So the only thing he could do was hold on. And so the father pulls him back to the shore and up on the dock, and the father asks the son, he says, what were you doing down there? And the son looks at him and he responds, just waiting on you, Dad. (laughs) Just waiting on you. Our faith calls for us to exercise trust in the middle of chaos. Sometimes it feels like the storm won't end, that it's never going to let up, but it's in the middle of the wind and the waves that we are called to a patient trust that Jesus has it under control. And so when we are caught in the storms of life, God is not absent, God is not aloof, God is not uncaring. In fact, if you're caught up in the middle of the chaos, the opposite is true. That there is something that God is working out for you or in you that you won't be able to see until it stops raining and until the waves are calm and until the wind stops blowing and everyone around you stops shouting and freaking out. But at the end of the day, you will see exactly what the disciples saw. A clear day, calm sea, and Jesus standing over it all saying, do not be afraid, I am here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that you are with us in our chaos, that this is just a fact of life. We go through ups and downs and seasons and craziness, Lord, Um, and yet you've given us your son as the one who sails with us through the storm. Sometimes he just calls out to it directly and says, be quiet, and it just dissolves miraculously. Other times it takes a long time to get to the other side. But Lord, we ask that you would help us trust you to resolve it in your way and in your time. 
and empower us to walk faithfully and trust faithfully Jesus as we go through those storms and the chaos of life. God, we give you thanks and praise for his life, for his death, for his resurrection, and so we pray now as he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.